in these verses. And he will blaspheme him by slandering his name. This last kingdom at the end of the age will be a kingdom that combines, as described here and in Daniel, one that will combine the brilliance and the wisdom of Greece, who is described as the leopard in Daniel, the brutality and the forcefulness of Persia, who is described as the bear in Daniel, and the majesty and the power of Babylon, who is described as the lion in Daniel, as did the Roman Empire. Now since A.D. 476, when Rome went down for the count, no one has succeeded in consolidating power over the whole world. Many have tried, but none has succeeded since then, but the Antichrist will succeed. Many have tried. Attila the Hun tried to consolidate power throughout the earth, but he could not conquer the Eastern Empire. Charlemagne, the great French conqueror whom many believe may have thought through deception himself descended from Jesus Christ. Charlemagne tried, but he failed. Napoleon tried, as did the Kaisers and Bismarck and Hitler. None have succeeded. The Russian Empire will not succeed, nor will the Chinese Empire succeed in consolidating power around the earth, but the Antichrist will. Now this man will be the most majestic human being that ever lived. You say, well now, what about Jesus? Do you recall anywhere anybody describing Jesus? One place. It says in Isaiah 53 that when they got through with him, the day he was crucified, even his mother wouldn't have known him. That's all it says. But this man will be the most majestic, attractive, winsome, charismatic leader that humanity has ever produced. Like the little antichrists of history, who have always come out of chaos, he will appear at just the right time to apparently save the world from chaos and disintegration under the judgment of God. What a majestic deceit it will be. He will also seem to be killed and will recover. And after that, there will be no limits to his power. We need to remember that Satan is not opposed to religion. Now we're going to see in the remainder of the chapter that the church is consolidated, all religions, not just the existing churches, but all religions consolidated in one religion under his leadership, worshiping him. Satan is not opposed to religion. He is the founder and the promoter of religion. He is one, he is opposed to Christianity. Satan's intent has always been to be the object of worship. Where he is described 
as to what he thought in the book of Ezekiel when he said to himself, I will ascend to the hill of God. I will sit on his throne. That has always been his objective. Therefore, from the very beginning of time, whatever name, whatever image, whatever idol has been worshipped, and often in his own name, worship has been devoted to Satan. Much pagan worship centers on him. Two contemporary illustrations. Uh, roughly 20 years ago in the, the, uh, the hallowed city of College Station, Texas, Gigham, where the Aggies dwell. I was in a bookstore, and I picked up off the bookstore shelf a book entitled The Satanic Bible by Anton LaVey, high priest of the Church of Satan in San Antonio. In the front of the book are the nine satanic statements which are the counterparts to the Ten Commandments. And one of the nine satanic statements I will carry with me in memory forever. It read something like this. Satan is the best friend the church has ever had. He has kept her in business all these years. He is often worshipped in his own name. Uh, I went to a movie during the days of my uh, traveling on business during a slow afternoon a couple of years ago uh, in some city. I'm not sure where I was. And the movie that I saw, knowing only the title, was a movie called The Believers. In the movie, there is a detailed explanation and description of the worship of a satanic cult out of the Caribbean. It was an effective presentation. The, the sensation of evil was all over the theater. And if you have read the papers at all, in recent weeks of the, the thing that has been discovered just south of the uh, border in Mexico on the mainland. I don't know if you picked it up, but in at least one of the stories that I read, one of the Americans involved in this said they got the idea, they drew the inspiration from that movie which essentially believed that Satan grants power and that the power was in the taking of life and in the, and in the blood of the victims. That is what Satan is really like. But the only time he is described in Scripture, it is by Paul, and he says he is an angel of light. So the Antichrist will be very, very attractive. Now Satan is a destroyer. He is a killer. He operates in the realm of death and destruction. He does not have, he has never had the power to give life. And so when we read that uh, 
in verse 3, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain. And the fatal wound was healed. It's phony. He does not have the power to give life. He operates in the realm of death. He cannot create. The imperial power of Rome will be extended to the entire planet and everyone except believers in Jesus will worship him. Notice in verses 5 through 10, war is made on the saints. Beginning in verse 5. And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all people who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the, life, in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for, for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Antichrist receives his power at the midpoint of the tribulation. He will break the treaty that has been made with Israel, which we shall see in detail in later chapters. And he will set up his throne and he will be worshipped by all humanity except the believers from the temple that will be rebuilt on Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And yet, notice in this chapter, more than once, it says the power was given to him. It was given to him. It was given to him. And elsewhere in Revelation, even at this time when he is in the ascendancy, when Lucifer, the day star, the morning star, is rising at his brightest, he is on a leash and he has no power except what God gives him. The tribulation will be worldwide. The kingdom at the end of time will be a universal, a worldwide kingdom. And the law of the harvest will still operate. Verse 10, I do not pretend to know all of its significance, but it indicates to me that in those last days, God, as He always does, will keep very careful records. And those who would not repent no matter what the provocation, no matter what lengths God has gone to, they who persecute and make war on the saints in those last days will reap what they have sown. He will blaspheme God. He will blaspheme God's name. He will desecrate God's temple and he will kill God's people. Notice in verses 11 through 15. Here we see the false prophet. And I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like the horns of a lamb. And he spoke, 
as a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the false beast, the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. And he performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life and there was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. The second beast, the other beast, is called the false prophet in Revelation 16, 19, and 20. In those days, the fondest dreams of all of those who have always believed and always taught that it does not matter what you believe as long as you are sincere and it does, matter, does not matter how you understand God, whether you understand Him in animism as the elements of nature, whether you understand Him as Islam does as Allah, whether you understand Him as self-realization and lost in the wonder of nirvana as do the Buddhists, whether you understand him in one of the thousands of deities of Hinduism, it makes no difference who you understand him to be as long as you understand. Their dreams will come true. All religion will be united finally. Believers will be killed, and I might editorialize that they will be better off. They will be before the throne, having washed their robes clean in the blood of the Lamb, and they will be praying for those on the earth. But many believers, it would appear, will also survive and enter into that thousand years reign of peace alive. He will be this second beast, the head of the one world apostate church. But there is a note even in these verses that justice will come to Satan. The false prophet is always secondary. He is clearly an imitation of the Holy Spirit. He seems like a lamb, but he has horns. That's a mixed metaphor. The lamb, of course, is meek and gentle and, and harmless. But the horns signify strength and hostility. And in reality, he is more dangerous than the other beast because his is the hidden hand of manipulation that moves people unseen. By the way, when I was looking at the text again a while ago and, and thought of the lamb with the horns... I thought of a metaphor that I heard recently, a word picture. I would like for you to remember it and think about it. It's got nothing to do with the message. A man that I heard speak said, The Lord has told us to go forth as lambs among wolves. 
But it seems to me that in the church we have been training an inordinate number of attack sheep whom he called Lambo. I like, and you know what, I, that is funny, it is cute, it is instructive, but the thing that hit me a while ago is that is the kind of description of the activity of Satan at the end of time. You know, in this same guy, in, in discussing this metaphor, said, you know, we're, we're an army. And he said, we're ready for battle. And, and when we're in the trenches and there's nobody else to fight, we just turn around and jump on each other. And it has been often and long said that we are probably the only army in the world that shoots and buries our wounded. And I think that's correct, but it's sad. Anyway, that's free, but it's worth thinking about. When destroyed, that is, when all of the other religions of the world are destroyed, a new God will be offered. A new God. He has no principles. He seeks nothing but honor and glory for himself and power for his father, Satan. Now, without the false prophet, without him, without the united support of all of the religions of the world, the political ends could never have been achieved. If you doubt that, consider Poland. Consider Poland. The socialist ends of communism in Poland will never be achieved as they are and probably shall be elsewhere in Eastern Europe because of the faith of the people of Poland. But when the deception occurs and the false prophet delivers the allegiance and the religious fervor of the world to the Antichrist, then he will be able to consolidate his empire. Now it says here that it was given to him, there it is again, verse 15, to give breath to the image of the beast. Now you may be, depending on what translation, I'm reading the New American Standard. Depending on what translation you have, you may have one that says it was given to him to give life to the beast. It is an unfortunate translation. It is not any of the words in New Testament Greek that is ever translated life. Rather, it is the word pneuma, pneumatic. You know what a pneumatic pump is? It is the word pneuma, which means wind, breath, or spirit. And it is the same word commonly used throughout the New Testament when it talks about the spirit as in John 3, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Satan does not have the power, it has not been given, it will not be given to him to give life, rather to give breath to the image. It is another example of deception. This second beast is an unusual figure. In fact, he is one of the most unusual figures found 
throughout the Word of God. And then notice, finally, in verses 16 through 18. Here is the mark of the beast. And he causes all, the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand or on their forehead. And no, I do not think this is the one at Disneyland. And he provides that no one should be able to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. And it sure couldn't be any of that uh, electronic transfer stuff because they've all got 20 digits. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of the man, of a man, and his number is 600. And 66, the mark of the beast. The best efforts of humankind will come to fruition in the Antichrist. I want you to think about that. You know, we Americans probably have as much temptation as anybody in the world to feel that the human spirit can triumph over everything. You want to see the triumph of, the hum, of huma, humanity and of the human spirit. Look at this chapter. The best that man can do without the presence of God in his life is to be the incarnation of Satan. That's the best. And he will cause them to be marked. The false prophet, we've said that he is brilliant, and he is. Notice how brilliant. He not only weds all religions together, he not only shapes them into one and marries them to the one world government, he also marries religion and government to business. And you know, he's got to be a whole lot smarter than anybody we've got trying to do it in Washington is the only thing they can do is pile up red ink. He weds business and religion. No mark, no food, no commerce, no goods, no services, no buy, no sell, no income, no property, no possessions, nothing. The believers will be outlaws on the face of the earth. Now the number of 666 is the number of the beast. It will be unpardonable to be marked. I do not believe that it in itself will be an act of unpardonable sin. I believe rather what the text says clearly is that no one who belongs to the Lord will allow themselves to be marked. And society is already moving that way. I read articles when I was uh, researching Revelation the first time over 10 years ago about a cashless society, and I just went berserk talking about that when I preached this in Revelation. You know, I thought it was all unholy, ungodly, and friends, it's getting closer and closer. Closer and closer. I mean, I, I thought it might be the mark of the beast, and I couldn't live without an ATM card. I'd be in deep trouble. I would have been somewhere uh, in Nebraska about three years now unable to get home without them. 
It's moving that way, even in the flow of society. Certainly the technology already exists today to make it work. Now the number 666 is the highest number of mankind. It is tripled, so it is the number of completeness. In Scripture, six is the number of man. We don't have time to talk about it, but when you see man in his ascendancy on the plains where the Tower of Babel was built, on the plains of Shinar where the golden image of Nebuchadnezzar was built, you will see very prominent the number six. The number seven is the number of God. This is a further confirmation that the Antichrist is an imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, perfect in all of his completeness, bears the number 777. The number of total perfection. This is an imitation. He is Satan's masterpiece. God's people will understand what this means then. We don't understand now. We do not know. Dr. W.A. Criswell says there may be a thousand speculations, and there are. There may one day be another thousand speculations, and there will be. But no one knows that 666, which is the number and mark of the beast, the final Antichrist, no one knows until the day and the hour comes. No speculation is satisfactory. None of it is good enough, and I guarantee you, you do not know. There was even hell, a hope held out in print up till seven or eight years ago that it might be Henry Kissinger. Because one of our numbers freaks, may have been the same guy that said Jesus was coming last October, figured that Henry's number was 666. You know, when it happens, there's not going to be any time or opportunity to sit around and speculate because literally all hell will have broken loose. I conclude with this statement from Dr. Criswell. Had the revelation closed with this chapter, of all of the things known and prophesied, our lives would be most discouraging and full of despair. But beyond this, as we turn the pages, here is the perfect seven, the seven-horned Lamb of God. Here is the perfect Spirit of God, seen as the seven spirits of God. Yonder is the holy, blessed world, the next world, the seven times blessing that God has poured out on the new creation. There is the glorious Lord, and the saints sing the sevenfold doxology of dominion and glory and power and honor unto him who lives forever and ever. At the end, man will not be able to hack it. We will have come full circle. And the end will be the same as the beginning. It will end with a word from God. May we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for the wonder and the mystery that is prophecy and that is the book of Revelation. I thank you that you have chosen to reveal so much to us, enough for us to understand that you have all power 
And that though we may not be able to discern the face of every event in our world, we know what the last word and the last result will be. Father, give us a sense of urgency. Uh, may we take our eyes away from future times and away from the world beyond. May we focus them on those around us who need Jesus today. I pray in his name. Amen. We will sing as a hymn of invitation during this time of commitment. Hymn 183, Only Trust Him. This hymn is a hymn offering salvation, but it is also appropriate for us to know that we may trust Him at all times. What He would have you do during this time of commitment, do it right now, do it quickly as we stand while we sing. Our men will take their places. We'll receive God's tithes and our offerings. May we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift beyond all gift, the gift of the Lord Jesus, who was not a counterfeit, but who was the real thing. And because of that gift, he told us that to whom much has been given, much is required. May we faithfully do not only what we must, our duty, but may we ask with every day of our lives, Lord, what can I do? How much can I serve? How much can I give? May we be possessed of the joy that is known only those by those who sow bountifully. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.
I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give him, which I shall give for the life of the world, is my flesh. The Jews began to argue among themselves, and then Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me. And I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, he also shall live because of me. Commenting on this text, John 6, Dr. Ironside said this, When we recognize that His precious blood poured out on the cross has atoned for our sins, it is then that we are eating His flesh and drinking His blood. And it is practically true that in the regular observance of the Lord's Supper, we do have that which calls our minds back again to Calvary and reminds us again of the price of redemption. We may recognize the relationship between communion and this pre precious truth as we feed in faith upon the body and blood of Jesus Christ we lose our appetite for everything unholy. That same precious body and blood will be our meat and drink through all the ages to come, and yonder in glory we shall be with him, the Lamb who was slain. Eating the flesh of the Son of God and drinking his blood are figurative expressions, and they mean laying hold of these precious truths by faith and making them our own. To eat is to appropriate nourishment. One who is really feeding on Christ will become like Him. Such a one will manifest His purity, goodness, tenderness, compassion, His kind interest in others. You take a professing Christian who is hard and bitter and critical of others, and you know he has not been feeding on Christ for a long time. That tells the story. You take a Christian who is drifting into worldliness and carelessness, who is becoming vain and haughty and self-centered. He has not been feeding on Christ. The Word says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That is the humble mind, the lowly mind. 
It is the mind that thinks of others and says, never mind me. This is not natural to us, but it is developed in us as we feed upon our blessed Lord, and this will be our portion forever. Gentlemen, would you come now as we prepare to serve the Lord's Supper? When Paul the Apostle was converted, he spent three of his first five years in the wilderness. He received his seminary training from the Lord. And he wrote to the church at Corinth, who if any church ever needed precision, it was the church in Corinth. And he revealed to them what the Lord told him about that night. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that on the night that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment on himself if he does not judge the body correctly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number and sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we should not be judged. So let a man examine himself and let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We Baptists have always believed that the Lord's table is a memorial. It is a remembrance. We neither believe that the elements of communion become the body and the blood of the Lord and thereby they have saving value as we take them into our bodies, nor do we believe that the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus are actually literally present with the elements as many under in our Christian family do. But we believe, taking simply and straightforwardly what Jesus said to his disciples, what Paul said to the Corinthians, that it is our opportunity as we profess our faith publicly in the New Testament through the act of believer's baptism. So we 
confess our allegiance and our utter dependence on Him for salvation as we come to the Lord's table. I do not believe that the Lord's gigantic computer has a file that is spit out in the last few minutes on each one of us and that you are in deep trouble if you do not accurately check off everything on the list. I believe the Lord wants us to take the supper. Uh, I intend to do this at least every 60 days. I would not be opposed to doing it every month. Not at all. But I do believe that we must never take it lightly. I would encourage you as the text says. It doesn't say examine yourself and don't take it. Why doesn't it say that? It doesn't. It does not say if you're not worthy and you examine yourself and you're not worthy, don't take it. That's not what it says. Unsaid is the reality of confession and forgiveness. Examine yourself. Confess it. Homo legeo in the Greek. Say the same words. The Holy Spirit of God as you examine your heart says, there it is. And you say to God, oh God, there it is. And it is gone. Examine and take, but do not take lightly or unexamined. For the supper, the Lord Jesus took a sop, that is a, a wad of the herbs that were there, and he drug them in the special uh, dip that we would call it that was there, and he handed it to the guest of honor. For at a feast, when one who had a special dinner, including the feasts of Israel, set up his room, he set up a, space, a place of special honor by his left hand. And seated on his left was Judas. And Jesus took it, not the bread, not the wine, but the sop, and he gave it, and he said to his friend, What you do, 